This podcast is for the strange and unusual. Welcome to Crackpot Cocktail Hour. Now you call yourself a satanic priest. Yes. Is that the opposite of God? No, because Satan is a god too. But what are you then, the, uh, the dirty pope or what? Oh, I guess you could call me that if you want to say the black pope or the dirty pope or the, the uh, advocate of, for example, the kingdom of night or darkness. No one's ever come forth so far and spoken up for the devil. Everybody that's made rules and regulations concerning the devil or the devil's work, the devil's activities, have been people that have been very righteous people, people during crusades, people... Well, I'm not too righteous, but on the other hand, I think you're a bit of a dingling. let's face it. Either that, or you're selling some kind of a snake oil. You've got very shifty little eyes, by right? It's very close together, too. They tell a story about you. Oh, well, yes, of course. What is the story that you'd like to tell us? The story is that I think that the devil has been the guy that's kept the church in business for many, many years. Without him and the concept of evil, where would the church be? Well, where would Notre Dame be if they couldn't play Southern Methodist? That's they right. got to have opposition. Is that that's the point right. You they have to have so opposition. So you're supplying, what, a loyal opposition? Well, I'm supplying a much-needed opposition. The word Satan only means adversary, as I said. It's uh-huh. not... Uh, you, you never use the word devil? Devils, of course. Devils are God. The original concept of the word devil is taken from a word meaning God. Well, listen, our time's all up. I'd like to tell you where to go, but you'd enjoy it. Oh, that's good. We'll be back with another guest after these words. Stand by. 1967 Anton LaVey on the Joe Pine television show. So, Lacey, how's your week going? (laughs) Alex, my week... I will tell you that this podcast is the highlight of my week. Like, hands down, for sure, this week. I, I agree 100%. I'm also excited this week we finally actually start publishing our episodes. Me too. Uh, so if uh, for some crazy reason it's sometime off in the way future and we have a bazillion episodes and you're listening to them in order and you're probably thinking, wait, didn't they already have three episodes? Yeah, we pretty much released those back to back to back. <laughs> yeah, we did a blitz. We did a three and three. So we released three episodes in three days to kind of try to garner a little bit more buzz. And what you don't know is we recorded all three episodes in one day. That's a blatant lie. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're not that kind of uh, marathoners. We love you guys. We're, we're not that dedicated. I I do have a full-time day job. And let me tell you, it is very stressful. Yeah. So I do not have the time during my 40-hour work week, assuming I actually take my lunch most days to sit down and just like marathon record. I would if I could. Yeah. Well, maybe maybe we'll do like a twofer in one day someday or something if we yeah. build up our stamina over time. Well, uh, one of the things I like about True Crime Garage is if you listen to like their early on episodes, they just do a one for one. And then as they realized that they needed to put in more content to their episodes, they started doing the uh, two episodes. And usually it'd be like, uh, I'll, we'll release an episode this day and then the following day is part two. Maybe if this ever becomes like our regular job. <laughs> Fingers crossed. We can dream. We can dream. Uh, if this were to ever you know, become our regular job, that could be something that we could tackle at some point in time if we want to cover something more in depth. I'm nodding. I realize that is silent. <laughs> You're also taking a drink of the beautiful drink that you've made for us this week. Yes, I will introduce that. It is Demonic Tonic. Demonic Tonic. Oh, by the way, welcome to Crackpot Cocktail Hour. <laughs> I'm Lacey. I'm Alex. And today we're talking about... Actually, today we are talking about the 
Satanic Panic, and we'll be drinking the Demonic Tonic. I wanted to do something kind of along the same lines of uh, the Satanic Panic. Lee actually helped me come up with the name. We walked around, well, not to- fully around Green Lake, but we walked near Green Lake <laughs> and talked about it. Didn't uh, Ted Bundy pick someone up in the Green Lake area? Or did he just hang out there a lot because it's so close to U District and Northgate? I'm not sure whether he picked someone up there. I know he picked him up in the state park. Like Sammamish. Di- yes, yeah, Sammamish. He, he did the Ted Bundy's double event was uh, Lake Sammamish. <laughs> you know, that man did have a lot of energy to spend on murdering. He really did. That was a full-time job for him. We barely have podcast energy, let alone murdering energy. Can I, you imagine? Oh my god. I'm just thinking about getting through the actual murder, which already is exhausting me. And then I'm thinking about moving the body prior to disposing of the body. And as much as I hate someone, I don't hate him enough to put in that much effort. I'm not even sure I have the energy to be murdered. Like, that's where I'm at this morning. <laughs> I uh, just just be nice to the cats. Make sure they have food on the way out. Right. <laughs> like, all right, I guess this is how it happens. I was like, well, gotta go sometime. Right. At least it'll make a cool story. I will let you know what's going on in this demonic tonic. It is three parts cranberry juice cocktail, two parts tonic, one part mezcal, and one part muddled jalapeno water strained. Mm. Uh, you shake it all up, except for the tonic. You shake everything up with ice. Uh, then you add the tonic, stir, and strain it into a glass and garnish it with a jalapeno slice. This looks like blood. <laughs> and I love it. Um, I actually, I remember you and I were talking because we were trying to figure out what would be the best kind of drink. And you are our mixologist. You are our drink master. I'm just like, give me a beer and I'll be happy. <laughs> uh, you and I actually, we thought about a couple of things leading up to this. So what made you land on this? Well... Uh, mainly failure. Uh, <laughs> what, I, what I had really hoped for was like an effect of contrast where I had one color of liquid in the glass and like a blood drippy effect on the outside. And I tried to like freeze grenadine in like a drip form in glasses and like the timing's just not right. And then the grenadine made the drink taste terrible. <laughs> so I found that the thing that made it taste good was the cranberry juice, which made it red. And I was like, ah, well, we'll just go with the red anyway, since it's like drinking a chalice of blood. And I will I will always go for something like that. And then you also have the, uh, the jalapeno in there for hellfire. That's right. Yeah, and the mezcal for uh, smokiness to add oh, kind of the good. smoke to the fire. Oh, so you're giving me a full immersive experience. Yes, I'm saying basically uh, go to hell. I love you so much. <laughs> well, let's give it, let's uh, try it. Cheers. Cheers. Again, why do we do this? I just always put in a fake one. Oh, that is, I do not know how to really describe that. Terrible? That is, no, 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 no. <laughs> definitely not terrible. I'm definitely getting the, the smoky in it. I feel like I am somehow drinking a campfire that I'm sitting next to, but not in a bad way. Does that make sense? Yeah, I'm, that's, I'm glad that you like it. I was going for something like that. It kind of gives me almost like a, an apple wood mm. uh, with like a little bit of hickory. That's lovely. Thanks. And I'm, I'm enjoying that. And it's so different from everything else because I feel like when most people just like make a mixed drink, they're like, okay, get some sort of fruit, maybe like soda, dump in the liquor. <laughs> <laughs> I had to work to make sure the tonic would work because the quinine can make it a little bit bitter. Mm-hmm. And if you get the wrong mezcal, it can like kind of go south. So I made sure I talked to the guy at the liquor store so he could sell me the more expensive one, which made me feel more confident. <laughs> You're like, okay, okay. Not All just right. a sale, not just a sale. <laughs> <laughs> but I have tasted them before at um, like a tequila and mezcaleria 
Uh, so I did remember that like the difference between the clear versus the more caramel color was like definitely tasteable. So I trusted him on that and went with the kind of more caramelly one. Yeah, there's a name for it, I'm sure. <laughs> I know that you do you do taste these uh, before you and I actually drink them. I do thank you for that, not just treating me like a human guinea pig. <laughs> You're welcome. That's Lee's job. I'm always like, I'll, I'll pass him like something half finished and be like, what does this need? Or like, what is ruining this? And he'll be like, I don't know, but it's not. You got to do something. <laughs> I, I, I just hate to have the day where you're just like, I am blindly giving you a cocktail. I'm like, blah, Lacey, you're fired. <laughs> yeah, I try not to. All right. So um, before we really like hop into this, uh, I want to put a couple of disclaimers on this episode. So um, number one, we are talking about the satanic panic as I said earlier on. Now, I feel like this is a subject which a lot of people talk about. Everyone has a vague idea of what it is, but I don't think anyone really understands the scope of it or the full story behind it. So I kind of want to dig into that mostly for information. But also, we understand that uh, there is a lot of sensitive material in this episode. Um, We will be describing, um, obviously, the word Satan's in it. So, I mean, there's a happy start for you. Yeah, that's a clue as to your content. I I know that immediately saying things like Satanist or Satanic is something that can be somewhat of a trigger warning. Um, But also in this episode, we're going to talk about what is referred to as Satanic ritual abuse. And you'll learn more about what that is throughout the episode. But anything having to pertain to abuse... uh, physical, emotional, psychological, sexual. Again, we understand these are triggers. We want to approach this uh, with great sensitivity. Know that even though this is a comedy podcast and Lacey and I do riff back and forth because it's just how we cope with reality. Yeah, we can't help ourselves, really. Even though it's a coping mechanism for us, know that we mean absolutely no disrespect to any victims in here. Be it those accused, be it people who may have been subject to abuses in their life. And also just because um, this overall has been uh, debunked, there are still one-off cases where people do abuse one another, sometimes with a ritual element, sometimes with an occult element. We do not want those people to feel like we're saying that didn't happen to you or your abuse is not legitimate. I co-sign. Lacey, do you have anything to add? Uh, No, I think I've got some more thoughts, but I want to give them as they come when we get into it. Okay. So, um, and I also do apologize. This is actually going to be one of our longer episodes just because there's so much content. I try to round it out as much as possible as we do with all of our stories. Um, And I did try to condense it as much as possible, but there's just information so you can kind of grasp what was going on in the world around it. So really this kind of starts with, uh, I would say, Anton LaVey and the the Church of Satan. Now, a lot of people have seen Anton LaVey. He kind of looks like, I would say, like an old sci-fi supervillain. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. Yeah. I would yeah. totally buy that. I can see him like in like an old black and white movie with like a robot in the background, like a Robbie the robot. <laughs> he's got his shaved head and his like pointy goatee. Yeah, there's something I think kind of deliberately sinister about his appearance. Yeah, yeah. And uh, one of the things that I actually really learned about LeVay while doing uh, my research is he very much was a showman at heart. So everything he does is for attention, is to grab a headline. He always has a purpose behind things, but not in a disrespectful way. Satan's the greatest show! (laughs) Uh, So really I found that um, I can really sort of begin to circle it 
uh, around his rise and fall. And I do want to give um, a lot of uh, thanks to the Cults podcast on the Podcast Network because they did a great two-parter about uh, Anton LaVey and the Satanic Temple. So this is just where I'm going to start. So on April 30th of 1966, during the pagan celebration of, and I apologize, I'm going to butcher this, well, Pergus Nacht. That's okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I- uh, during this pagan celebration of Pergus Nacht, Anton LaVey ritualistically shaved his head in the tradition of executioners and established the Church of Satan. Ironically, two holidays collide with this date. The first, as I said before, is the pagan holiday of Wolpert's, uh, Wolp- Wolpergus Nacht. Wolpergus Nacht. Well, you have blonde hair and blue eyes. <laughs> <laughs> She's a witch. It, it sounds like a very German word. That's so. fair. That's fair. <laughs> I'll own that one. Uh, so, uh, it's also known as Walpurg's Night. Oh, that makes sense. Knocked. Yeah. So, Walpurg's Night is a Christian holiday celebrating uh, St. Walpurga. St. Walpurga is often called upon to protect one from witchcraft and gain fame for successfully converting local populaces to Christianity. And this is, as we know, a big theme in Christianity of taking uh, more pagan uh, holidays and turning them to more Christian holidays. That's why we say Yuletide, as in the pagan holiday Yule at Christmas. What? I know. <laughs> I mean, yeah, no, I I know. But I think it is still a like useful point to make that like Christianity has tended to just like be like, no, that's mine now. Bastardize every other religion, tradition, and mythology out there. Yeah, I think that's what I was looking for. <laughs> I I just got excommunicated, I'm pretty sure. I started <laughs> off with Satan and I said things against Christianity. The Pope is just pissed. Well, three minutes into this podcast episode, she kicked herself out of the church. What can I say? <laughs> I actually just converted to a Satanism right here on this podcast. You heard it here, folks. <laughs> uh, so... Uh, not only does it coincide with the holiday of St. Walpurga, but April 30th is also recognized as uh, Beltane, which is largely celebrated amongst the Wiccan community. Now, this is a festival sometimes held on May 1st, and it celebrates the halfway mark between the spring equinox and the summer solstice. And knowing what you're going to learn about LaVey and what I've learned about LaVey is I have absolutely no doubt that he knew that it was going to coincide with these two dates. It was probably planned because think about the hilarity of it being both a strong pagan holiday and then a Christian holiday for someone who was taking down local pagan groups. It seems very deliberate on his end. In Seattle, we have our own version of Beltane on May 1st called May Day, where people downtown (laughs) smash the windows out of the Nike store. On the 31st is when he shaves his head and he announces the beginning, and this is in 1966, he announces the beginning of the Church of Satan. Then less than a year later, on the 1st of February, 1967, reporters from the LA Times and the San Francisco Chronicle arrived at the Black House in San Francisco to witness the first ever satanic baptism. Ooh. I know. What is it? How do you do a satanic baptism? I mean, not that I'm going to do one, but if I wanted to. You can actually uh, read articles about this and you can actually see photographs of it. Because like I said, it was the LA Times and the San Francisco Chronicles. There are quite a few people, but he performed this on his own three-year-old daughter as she sat dressed in a red cloak not dissimilar from the storybook Red Riding Hood. And that little girl was you! (laughs) I'm always the child in these stories. I was the baby shitting her pants in Pepcon. I was the child in the streets when the Wienermobile showed up. And now I'm being baptized into the Church of Satan. What a life you've led. I know. 
so many stories. I should really write a memoir. <laughs> you should. Tie it all together. So this event actually helped sensationalize the Church of Satan. And then on May 3rd of that same year, the very first satanic wedding was held at the Black House. Aww. So if you don't know what the Black House is, which many people don't, as I said, it's in San Francisco. It's this old Victorian home that Anton LaVey purchased. And he's turned it now into pretty much like the headquarters of the Church of Satan. And uh, stories go back and forth on uh, how he obtained the house and whether or not it was black when he purchased or if he painted it black himself. All you really need to know is that it's a beautiful Victorian house called the Black House where their main temple is located. Okay. So during his early history, uh, the Church of Satan would kind of pepper itself into the background of public consciousness. I mean, obviously, 1966, he announces that it's being created. 1967, first satanic baptism and the very first satanic wedding. Obviously, this is grabbing headlines, but it's kind of just like peppered in the background of everything. It's not on the forefront. I don't know if you know this or not. A lot happened in the 60s. No, I thought the 60s were a sleeper decade. <laughs> Believe you me, it was quite a time. I've got to watch the History Channel more. You can Netflix, Hulu, Amazon. I don't know, go outside, talk to a guy in a tie-dye t-shirt. <laughs> good pointers, good pointers. I'll educate myself. I should also point out that we live in Seattle and Jimi Hendrix is from here. And also like literally like half the people on the street are in tie-dye at any given time. Yeah, and just, I don't think it entirely ended here in Seattle. <laughs> no. It's still going strong. <laughs> go to Capitol Hill, you'll see what we mean. So the publication of the Satanic Bible and public spectacle events served to put the church on the map but Anton toned down his more public, uh, his appearance in public, and he kind of like stepped away from like these more like shocking events. So one of the things that Anton uh, was actually kind of known for is he didn't really like to advertise the Church of Satan on his person. He hmm. was like, this is who I am, this is you know, part of my personal belief. So he would actually get a little bit offended when people would like show up wearing like bat necklaces, like goth kids dressed up year-round, which <laughs> is kind of funny because that's what you think about. Yeah, and he's like, come on, man, don't be so corny. Satan's in your heart. So and actually, it kind of goes back to the beginning of the Church of Satan, like how this, this started, how you know that Satan's in your heart. So the church actually began as a modest Friday night meeting at the Black House where various individuals would would discuss the occult and philosophy and mythology. So uh, the Church of Satan, as I said, it started off as a very tame thing. It was mostly people just discussing ideas. And it just kind of ends up like bookending this whole satanic panic event. So I'll kind of like give you like a real brief rundown of the history of this time. And you can kind of see how it starts to build on itself. Okay. So between the years of the founding of the Church of Satan and the end of the satanic panic, the public witnessed the following events. So first on June 29th, 1967, Jane Mansfield and her attorney boyfriend, Sam Brody, died in a car accident. Mansfield was actually a very close friend and it's rumored that she may have been a lover of Anton LaVey. LaVey cursed Brody to die within a year after the man supposedly desecrated a candle at the Black House. Now, in this event, he knew that Mansfield and LaVey were friends and that she usually went to these Friday night meetings before the Church of Satan was founded. And Anton LaVey described her as a very curious individual with a very open mind. Okay. Brody was incredibly jealous, and so he went to the Church of Satan, and he decided to go into the temple by himself, and there was a candle that Anton would use in some of his rituals, and Anton told him, don't do that, and he lit it anyway and started a fight with him, and Anton just, in anger, just says, fine, in a year you're gonna die, you're gonna die within the next year, and it's... 
Some say that he just like said it like in anger. Some say it was a legitimate curse. I honestly think it's just going to be one of those, I want to fucking kill you. I hope you die within the next year kind of thing. Yeah. Like I told you not to light my damn candle. I mean, don't light the black flame candle. <laughs> You're not a virgin, you man. Bring back the Sanderson sisters. <laughs> it's not Halloween. What are you trying to do? <laughs> it's not even a full moon. Get that bat necklace off. <laughs> <laughs> In my opinion, it seems like this was an event where this guy was just being a jealous dickhead and Anton was just like, dude, fuck off. Get out of here. But they both actually ended up dying in a car accident. And this actually left LeVay devastated when he learned that Mansfield was in the car accident that killed Sam Brody and she died as well. Be careful what you curse for. But actually, uh, up until the day that he died, he actually did blame himself in part for her death. Whether or not he thought that it was a legitimate curse that uh, worked or the fact that he just felt so guilty that he said that and then it just happened to occur. Yeah, that's and fair. he lost his friend in it. So that's June 29th, 1967. Then on June 28th of 1967, Rosemary's Baby was released in theaters. Now, this horror thriller tells a story of Rosemary Woodhouse and her husband, Guy. You look like you have a comment. Nope. I'm just excited where this is going because I like Rosemary's Baby. (laughs) So, in the film, obviously you like Rosemary's Baby, you know that uh, Rosemary is impregnated with the son of the devil. Like you, like sometimes you are, you know? It happens. Yeah. Uh, so, spoiler alert, if you haven't seen Rosemary's Baby, it came out in 1968, so you really don't have much of an excuse, but still, if you don't want a spoiler, go ahead and skip ahead. Uh, in Rosemary's Baby, she and her husband move into a high-rise apartment complex in New York City, and they have these kind of peculiar neighbors, and one night after they go to dinner with this kind of odd couple, um, Rosemary has a dream where a demon is having sex with her. And then as the story goes on, you see like these strange events kind of happening around the building. She keeps having terrible premonitions about her infant. And at the same time, her husband, who's an actor, keeps getting bigger and better roles. He's becoming more successful. And then the big twist at the end of it is that she actually was raped by the devil while she was sleeping. And it was agreement they made because their neighbors introduced her husband to this devil worshiping. And it was in exchange for him to be successful. So was it worth it, dude? Let me work it. Put my thing down, flip it, and reverse it. <laughs> That's the, uh, the claim, so- like, title song from Rosemary's Baby, correct? Exactly. You didn't know Missy Elliott was around back then? By the way, I fucking love Missy Elliott. Yeah, who doesn't? If you don't, you're Fools. wrong. <laughs> anyway, so the film Rosemary's Baby was directed by Roman Polanski, who was one of the hottest directors at the time. Then, on August 8th of 1969, the Manson family killed six, pe- uh, killed six people, including the unborn child of actress Sharon Tate. Tate was the wife of Roman Polanski. Now, this is something that a lot of people had not heard of before. Um, I actually talked to my father about this, and he said the Manson family was actually seen as a satanic act by the public, and it's probably how rumors of the Manson family being a satanic cult began. Oh. Just because the crime was so heinous, they... Cut a, I apologize again for the graphic nature of this, but they cut an infant uh, or murdered an infant in her mother's womb and they wrote pig in her blood on the wall. It was a horrific crime scene and it just shocked the entire country and it still shocks everyone today. Yeah, so I can understand how trying to wrap your mind around something can just be like, I mean, this has to be some kind of demonic worshiping act. Like this can't just like normal people wouldn't dream this up even. Right. And actually, um, I actually was recently listening to a podcast covering uh, Jack the Ripper and they talk about how when they found the body of Mary Kelly, the detective said something to the effect of it looks like the devil was in there. Mm. 
Because it was just, like, it was, again, it was such a heinous act. That's all you can do is equate it to absolute evil. Yeah. So obviously a lot of people thought that this uh, Sharon Tate's death may also be in a way tied to Rosemary's baby because it has such a heavy Christian theological theme to it. Mm. And the literal devil is spoken about. There's an infant in it is directed by Roma Polanski. And then less than a year later, his wife and his unborn child are murdered by yeah. these horrible people. I wonder also if people were like, well, that's what you get from making a movie about Satan. Like, I'm not saying that's what how I feel, but I can see people being like, well, you invited that into his life. Yeah, well, actually, one of the things that you also uh, kind of think about is we've talked about this before, how we kind of go through weird trends in history, like how in the 90s, there were like celestial themes everywhere. and We had a weird obsession with angels for a while. Yeah. Right now, I think we're at the tail end of the zombie craze. And uh, in the 70s, there were a lot of movies about uh, Christianity. Yeah. And we're actually going to talk about that a little bit, too. Because then on December 6th in uh, 1973, The Exorcist debuted. This film follows the possession and subsequent exorcism of Raven... uh, Raven. That's so Raven. (laughs) Reagan. Reagan McNeil. Now, the film itself was rumored to be cursed. A few things happened that actually brought about this rumor. And our number one, the original house that it was filmed in was burned down. But the actual exorcism rooms that were used in the film were left untouched. So you know how most of the exorcism takes place in her bedroom? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that part was fine. Everything else was gone. Because Satan protects it. Because, you know, my name is Satan. (laughs) Woohoo! Also during the filming of The Exorcist, uh, two members of the cast actually died. And they're actually the same two members who die in the film. Oh, shit. See, I, I was going to ask you. I, like, remembered the rumor that people had died during the making of the film, but that was as much as I knew. Yeah, so uh, one of the people who dies in the film is uh, at the beginning when Reagan comes down to the party and she urinates on the floor, she says to the director of her mother's film, because her mother's an actress at the time and they're uh, in a different location for her shooting schedule, she says to the director, you're going to die from up there. And it's his death that kind of like prompts getting more people uh, to investigate Reagan's case a little bit more. But uh, he falls from Reagan's window down the steps and has his neck broken. And actually the uh, priest at the end of the film who dives out the same window when he takes the demon onto himself dies in almost the exact same fashion. Wow. They both go right down the stairs. They both break their neck. Interesting. I also love The Exorcist because I'm broken inside. (laughs) So the same two people that died in the film die in real life. Uh, Other people suffered serious injuries. Did Um, they die by breaking their necks and falling down those stairs? No. Okay. Thank God. (laughs) Uh, Don't worry, the next film I'm going to talk about gets worse. But uh, also during The Exorcist, when the movie premiered in Rome, uh, moviegoers actually withstood a very heavy downpour. There was a huge storm that night. And there just happened to be a church across the street from the cinema. And right as the film began, lightning struck the church. (laughs) That's awesome. As a reporter, I'd be like, oh, shit, this is amazing. I'm like, gold! (laughs) Yeah, I'm going to write the hell out of this. Jerome had a really good newspaper day. Yeah, Jerome. Oh, man. Jerome. He's going to be a a return character. I like it. So that was December 6th of 1973. And then on June 25th of 1976, The Omen was released. Because, you know, let's just escalate the fuck out of this. We already have the devil. We already have one cursed movie. Let's bring back the devil, the son of the devil, and make an even more cursed movie. Y'all motherfuckers need more Satan. Dude, Satan was having a time in the 60s and 70s. He owed it all to us. So the film followed the early years of Damien, who is the Antichrist, and his adoptive father, 
who discovers his origins. Now, the film was also rumored to be cursed. Uh, so first of all, Liz Moore, friend of designer John Richardson, she was decapitated in a car accident, uh, which mirrors one that Richardson had designed for the film. So in the film, there was actually intended to be a car accident where an individual is decapitated. She dies, his friend, in that exact same way. Good lord. I mean, it's not even subtle anymore. <laughs> that's, that's pretty, like, specific for, like, coincidental things. It's, like, pretty on the nose. Yeah. And also an animal handler was actually killed by a tiger while on set. Ate that gear, poo-poo. <laughs> it was sure calm, the tiger. That's... It's an inappropriate time for a joke. I couldn't hold back. <laughs> you know, Shere Khan will surely kill the boy. <laughs> Are you quoting Jungle Book right now? Yes. Yes, I am. I have no shame. <laughs> I just talk about the devil and quote the Jungle Book, and then I sleep and shit my pants. I mean, don't you know this about me? You've got such a complex life. I appreciate you spending time here with us doing uh, this. You're welcome. It's my pride and joy. So also, a plane carrying cast and crew uh, was struck by lightning on three separate occasions. So let me break that down to you. Three different times, cast and crew members are on, a, on an airplane, and three different times, an airplane is struck by lightning. Is it the same airpl- airplane? Because they should have like gotten that checked out <laughs> to see like... Is it not the same plane? Okay. Not the same plane, not the same pilots. Um, I'm not sure if any of the crew members were on two or more of the flights. Because like if it was like the same guy, I would just be like, I'm going to not fly with Gregory Peck anymore. Because I mean, I love Kill a Mockingbird, but fuck you, man. What happens when a plane is struck with lightning, I wonder? Um, I've actually, I've never been on a plane that's been struck by lightning. I've heard stories of planes that have been struck by lightning. I've heard of, you know, losing power. I've heard just you kind of like... It drops a little bit. I don't know. I've never been in that situation. Huh. It just sounds interesting. It's and and weird weirdly coincidental that this is happening to so many people involved with the movie. This is also my second story where something happens to an airplane because a plane was buffeted in our Pepcon story. That's right. I just I have a theme. You're uh, destined to be explaining minor airplane things to me. <laughs> now let me tell you about the uh, aerial paths that are taken in Europe. <laughs> Please do. As I know because I've never been to Europe. That will hopefully change. Yeah. You'll take an aerial path there. Also speaking of airplanes, a plane hired for aerial shots crashed, killing all on board. Oh my god. Also, trained Rottweilers defied a trainer and mauled a stuntman. What the hell? Also, the IRA nearly blew up the production several times. Well, I mean, the IRA blew up a lot of things, so (laughs) I'm less concerned about that. That seems like what the IRA does. But I mean, could you imagine like working like you've just finished like a beautiful set and then like a part of it's just gone? God. Because goddamn English won't stop invading Ireland. Get it together. Then in the summer of 1976, New York lived in fear of the notorious son of Sam killer, David Berkowitz. Now, during this killing spree, Berkowitz killed six and he wounded several, uh, seven others. After his arrest, Berkowitz claimed that his neighbor's dog, Sam, demanded the blood of girls. The black dog, he claimed, was a demon. Yeah, I'm waiting for your reaction. I, the first th- thought I had was supernatural because they talk about the black dogs in there because I know it's a whole thing. Um, Son of Sam's a whole thing. Uh, I feel like that sounds less like a demonic thing and more like a mental illness thing <laughs> when a dog is telling you to murder people. That's not a sign that the dog has got something real, yeah. real to say to you. I, uh, I have three things to say to that. Um, number one, the black dog is actually, uh, they do talk about it in the TV show. I know it goes beyond supernatural. But it, it 
it is a very common uh, demonic theme, a uh, bad omen, in many different religions and many different theologies and mythologies. So uh, the black dog, I mean, th there's some truth to that. As far as the uh, claiming that the do dog is talking to him, that sounds like crazy times to me. <laughs> but here's the thing, it was in, I want to say it was in the 90s, but later on, he actually admitted that he made up the whole black dog thing. It was just bullshit. Yeah, I mean, probably like he had heard a black dog story somewhere and was like, oh, people might think this is a real thing, so. Yeah, I mean, it, it made a great story that he was going around killing women who look similar at the beckoning of an animal. Who doesn't want to hear that story? I mean, that's, it's a more fascinating story than just a pissed off guy with a minor Jufro going around shooting people in New York. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, David Berkowitz, we're not impressed. Get it together. Ain't no son of mine. So then in 1980, the book Michelle Remembers was published by Michelle Smith and her psychiatrist husband, Lawrence Pazdar. So the book actually recounted her recovered memories of SRA, also known as satanic ritual abuse. Uh, and we will say SRA going forward throughout the rest of the episode to refer to this phenomena. But the term was actually coined by her psychiatrist hus uh, husband. The book events became the model for identifying individuals who suffered from SRA. So this was based on one person's anecdotal experience or? Yeah, so according to the book, these were recovered memories. Uh, now, I don't believe that this was anything to do with like hypnotherapy, but it was just uh, recovered memories of abuses that she suffered in her childhood that she believed were at the hands of a satanic cult. And it was coined as satanic ritual abuse. And recovered memories are memories that like you don't necessarily have for your entire life. They're memories that like you come back to at some point after not remembering them. Yes, yes. Um, you actually uh, would know more about this than uh, I do as you have a master's in psychology. And I know that you're gonna have a lot of thoughts and opinions as we get more into this, which I am all here for. I honestly <laughs> cannot wait to hear your input on this. Um, but some of the things to remember, like when it comes to recovered memories, and I mean, you and I have spoken about this before, is when you recall even a common memory, it changes a little bit each time you think about it. And yes. there have been a number of studies. Um, one of my favorite TV shows is actually Brain Games, where they kind of like exploit how much your brain actually remembers and how much it pays attention. Brain Game Season 1 is great. Brain Game Season 2 is a lot about girls and dancing and tits. So I would, I would oh, stick well, with... Oh, well, I've only seen Season 1. Season 1's amazing. So I, guess, I guess I'm in a good place I started watching right Season now. 2 and Lee and I were like, what the hell? Is this the man show brain game? I'm not sure what to do here. It's the man show. So it's but yes, <laughs> I'm with you. Yeah, yeah. So, um, and when it's taken from just like one person's account, I don't really see that as like a very good model to put anything by because you're really going off of one person's account that could be total bullshit. And I'm not saying that Michelle didn't suffer from anything at all. What I am saying is that if you take John Doe or Jane Doe and they tell you a story and it's only one person that's documenting it, you can't really verify the accuracy of it. I don't, and uh, and this is just recovered memories. It's not her husband going into a full uh, investigation into what actually happened to her. Well, and I want to also say that I feel like, first off, I have a question. When was this published again? 1980. I feel like by 1980, at least from what I know, with like the standard for psychological research, like in, in the history of ever, like, I don't think that we, at least now in 2019, like the accepted mm -hmm. standard is definitely not like one person maybe went through one thing and we're going to coin an entire term around 
Like there, there has to be like a large study of <laughs> lots of people. Yeah, and I agree. As we all know, uh, the last step of the scientific method is repeat because yes. your experiment may have a fluke result. You need to verify its consistency uh, to get an accurate result. And then obviously, you know, peer review. So, and it seems like all these things are absent. And it's, I think this book is written less from a uh, psychological teaching standpoint and more from a biography standpoint. And if that was the way the public took it, that would be one thing. But this legitimately became a coined phrase and it became very much a part of this whole psychological phenomena. It reminds me very much of how uh, the film Sybil made people yeah. think that multiple personality disorder was much more widespread. Uh, we now call it dissociative identity disorder, but they thought it was much more widespread than it really is. So correct me if I'm, if I'm wrong, because you're, again, obviously know more about this than I do, but uh, wasn't even the book which Sybil was based on, wasn't that even disputed for its accuracy? Yes. Okay. And so that was like one case of one person self-report. And we were like, oh, this is a whole real big giant thing and an issue that many people... And like, I'm not dismissing DID, but I am mm -hmm. dismissing like the idea that it's incredibly prevalent. Yeah. And also, um, as you said, to get any sort of accurate reading on anything, you need multiple case studies. It's why whenever they're trying uh, new drugs, they're not like, we're just going to try on this one guy and see how he reacts to this new pharmaceutical. You get a whole pool of people. You do a double blind studies yeah you want to verify the accuracy of your data well and also particularly for establishing a new diagnosis like a diagnosis is a set of symptoms you need like enough people that present that some that like specific set of symptoms or report that very specific thing in order to like call it a phenomenon yeah and i think of uh, very much like the sybil thing it was just a good story because i mean you get down to it the story of sybil i mean even the film with sally field it's very well done. It's very captivating. It doesn't need to be accurate or legitimate to be entertaining. And I think there, we're all drawn to the idea that we're, as humans, more complex than it seems. I think that we sense that on a real level and we're drawn to stories that tell us maybe this is how we're more complex than we seem. Yeah, I just think it's very dangerous when something that's a, a one-off scenario or an individual case of something that may not have been heard of anywhere else. I think it's very dangerous when you take a single case study and a single bio, uh, biographical event and you kind of wrap it up as a scientific truth or kind of market it in that way. I agree. So I think uh, that was a big problem with, as you said, with Sybil, but also that was a big problem with SRA. And again, you need to remember like, all this stuff that's in the background, uh, the Church of Satan is founded. You have all these articles about the first satanic baptism and the first uh, satanic wedding. So now you know there are people that identify as Satanists in the country. Uh, then you have the Manson family murders. And then you have this whole phenomena of films coming out that kind of embrace this. And the Manson family murders happen around Rosemary's baby. And then you get the exorcist and then you get the omen. And so it's just kind of like this uh, escalation factor. And it's these like kind of separate things that like Church of Satan is one thing. And then we've got the films are another thing and the Manson, like, but we're trying to all tie it together with this common thread of like, Satanism like it's Satanism as viewed from Christianity or Satanism as viewed by like pop culture and world It's just kind of getting mixed together in our psyche. Yeah. Yeah um, And actually so the next event is also a major event before the largest one um, and then on uh, so I told you, you know, in 1980, that book was published. Yes. And then from April 10th of 1984 to August 24th of 1985, 
serial killer Richard Ramirez, aka the Night Stalker, committed a horrific series of burglaries, rapes, and murders up and down California. He was arrested on August 31st of 1985 after being nearly beaten to death by members of a small town in Arizona. Uh, it was actually Tucson, Arizona. They nearly beat this guy to death after a woman on the street recognized him from his photo on the wanted posters. Whoa. And actually, I love how uh, My Favorite Murder puts it because it really is like the whole town just, they rose up and they were just like, no, fuck this guy. Yeah, they're like, oh, oh, you mean this asshole? Yeah, and uh, like they're chasing him down the street and he even said when the cops got there, they would have killed me if you hadn't shown up. So that alone is just an incredible story of just the people being like, no, fuck you. It was... I think when you, the murderer, are relieved that the police are showing up, like, <laughs> it's a really, like, funny situation. It's like for two seconds, everyone in Tucson, Arizona just turned on Twisted Sister as loud as they could. They're like, we're not gonna take it. No! We ain't gonna take it. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. That sounds like, um, I know that vigilante justice has its pros and cons, but I'm going to say I'm I'm in support of it in that specific instance. Honestly, if I was a, a producer on like something like Drunk History, or if I did my own film about about uh, the Richard Ramirez Night Stalker, I would have we're not going to take it playing during the scene in the 1980s when the people are just chasing him down the street. Would you have at least one person with a literal pitchfork that they found somewhere? Somebody's have a torch. It does not count if you have one or the other. It has to be both. It has to be both. Just like it's either a top hat or a monocle. No, it's both. It's both. If you want to be really classy. And if you're really classy, like Mr. Peanut, you also have a cane. Yes. It's classy to be disabled. <laughs> Standards. <laughs> so, uh, but Richard Ramirez very famously during his first court appearance on June 22nd of 1988, lifted his left hand to reveal a pentagram he'd drawn on the inside and said, Hail Satan. Which we know, and he would have, LeVay would have rolled his eyes at and been like, ah, oh, this fucking guy with the pentagram in the hand. And actually, that is exactly what Anton LeVay pretty much like <laughs> thought about all this stuff. Um, and uh, I can go in a little bit in a minute about, uh, actually, you know what? We'll, we'll just talk about it now because I could tie more into it at the end, but I really do think that we should touch base a little bit on Anton uh, LeVay's history. Okay, so uh, I'm just going to talk really briefly about uh, the history of the Church of Satan. Now, Anton LaVey, he says that he uh, grew up working as a circus performer for a long time, mostly working with big cats. And it was during this time while he was literally ran away to travel with the circus, as all kids threatened to do. <laughs> but only LaVey did. <laughs> only LaVey. It's where he developed his sense of showmanship. And he learned, you know, uh, magic tricks, things like that behind the scenes. And uh, so he kind of used that natural showmanship for the rest of his life. He then went on to tell people in his autobiography about how he spent a time working for the San Francisco Police Department. And specifically, he worked as a photographer for crime scenes. So he would go into not just any old murder scenes, but suicides, car accidents, things like this, uh, just to grab uh, photographic evidence. Uh, including jumpers from the San Francisco Bay Bridge. Whoa. And he ended up saying that it was at this point in time of his life that he really separated himself from God because he's like, if this is a part of God's plan after seeing all these horrible things, I just don't want to be a part of it. And so he really started getting into, uh, he'd always been fascinated by the occult, by philosophy, by theology. And like I said, when he started all of his things at the Black House, it was just conversational. It was just like-minded individuals 
getting together to discuss uh, ancient witchcraft and rituals and the occult and uh, the histories of religion. And it really started off as a freeing philosophical thing. And the reason he actually chose uh, to name it the Church of Satan is, number one, if you want to make a spectacle, make a fucking spectacle. Yeah, that was a way to do it for sure. That's really a good way to uh, to grab attention. But also, he did it in a very satirical way. The Church of Satan doesn't worship the literal devil. He saw Lucifer more specifically as a metaphor for the anti-god for just anti-religious establishment. And it's not that he's just like, well, down with Jesus. It was just, look at all the things historically that have been done in the name of religion. Now, he was mostly specifically targeted at Christianity because, I mean, we all know it's the Crusades alone, witch burning, Spanish Inquisition. Yeah, there's just, a lot of- just, just to name a few. A lot of damage has been done gonna... in the name of God, specifically in the name of Jesus. Yes, so it's not so anti-Christian, it's more just anti-religious establishment because he believed that if you were to have a moral compass, you shouldn't have to be tied to a specific deity or religious practice to be a good person or to be the person that you want to be. And you shouldn't have to just be a good person just because you're afraid of some god wagging their finger at you or because you're afraid of breaking society or religious laws. So it's more the idea that your moral code should come from somewhere inside instead of an external thing. Yeah, and so I like to say that my personal philosophy is don't be a dick. And I think that's kind of just like what the Church of Satan does is just don't be a dick. Which is also why I said that he really like rolled his eyes at the people that would dress in like all black and make a big spectacle about being a Satanist because that's not what it's about at all. But we can talk more about a genuine Satanism at the end. But the fact that he put it out there and was tied to a movie star like Jane Mansfield and then all these other events started, you can kind of see like where this domino effect is beginning and how this yeah. escalation is starting. Yeah, really. Gaining cultural steam. Yeah, and now you've had two serial killers claiming some sort of demonic or evil connection to their crimes. David Berkowitz claiming that a dog possessed that by a demon told him to kill a bunch of women. And then the other one being Richard Ramirez literally holding up his hand and saying, Hail Satan in his first courtroom appearance. <laughs> but every single person can agree that the satanic panic probably officially started on September 8th of 1985. Now, in this event, uh, Ray Bucky, an educator at McMartin Preschool in Manhattan Beach, California, was arrested. His estranged wife, Judy Johnson, reported Ray Bucky sodomized their son at the school using a thermometer. Their preschool-aged son? Yes. Okay. Not to take his temperature? She just said with a thermometer. Okay. That just sounds like taking a temperature. Yeah, I mean, I guess, like, the way in which you do a thing can depend on how violatory it is, but... That is that is very, very true. So she claimed that he sodomized him with a thermometer. The accusations then increased, including physical abuse sexual abuse, and bestiality. Okay, so that does it for uh, part one of Satanic Panic. This episode ended up being a little bit longer than we expected. So it's going to be two parts. Our passion for talking about the Satanic Panic overfloweth. So <laughs> we hope that you look forward to download and listen part two of our Satanic Panic episode. That is our conclusion to the Satanic Panic series. Yeah. The devil went up to Seattle. <laughs> <laughs>
he was looking for some cold brew to steal. <laughs> he was um, in a bind and he was way behind and he needed an organic meal. Oh man, we are going to get so sued by the Charlie Daniels band. Uh, yeah, so we will see you tomorrow for part two of Satanic Panic. Bye.